Thank you to Sean and Elvira. I hope we have our Bibles open to uh, James chapter 1, the passage that Elvira just uh, read for us. You know, Martin Luther, the, the great German reformer, said, said this. He said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. James, in, uh, in this section heading at, towards the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is, is picking up on this theme of religion, a religion that is pure and that is undefiled before God, a religion that is worth something, a religion that matters, is a, is a religion that, that expresses itself in loving our neighbor. What we're going to learn today is that loving our neighbor proves that our religion is pure before God. Loving our neighbor proves that our religion is pure before God. Now, as we've been studying the book of James so far, we notice that James uses key words at the end of one sentence and then the beginning of the next to bridge and to build on what he has been saying. If you look back to verse 3 and verse 4 of chapter 1 with me, you, you notice how he, he talked about trials and how trials produces steadfastness in verse 3. But then in verse 4, he builds and bridges on that theme of steadfastness when he says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. He, he mentioned the, the word steadfastness, and then he bridges and builds on that word to talk about what he's going to discuss next. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. He says that, that if we are steadfast, and, and it produces this kind of maturity in us, then we will be lacking nothing. He uses the word lacking at the end of verse 4. Then look at the beginning of verse 5. He says, but speaking of lacking, if any of you lacks wisdom, and then he goes into that whole, the, that whole discussion of asking God for wisdom, and that he's a good father who gives generously. Then look down with me at verse 21 when he tells them, he reminds them that, that God is the father of lights and that he has caused us to be born again, that he's brought us forth by the living word. And then James says, speaking of the word, I mentioned word in verse 21, then look at verse 22, but be doers of the word. You see, he's always bridging and building. He, used, he mentions a word at the end of one paragraph or one sentence, and then he introduces a new concept by bridging through that word. Now look, look with me at verse 26 and 27. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue... Remember, James had been talking about anger and, and obedience, hearing the Word, and then speaking. That's what we talked about last week, the, the signs that, that, that we are hearing well. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He uses the word religion. At the end of verse 26, look at verse 27. Now he says, religion... He's starting, he's starting a, a new theme that's going to lead us into chapter 2. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about the sin of partiality. And, and then later on, he frames all of this under the command one of Jesus' most often repeated commands, he quotes this command from Leviticus chapter 19 six times in the Gospels, the command to love your neighbor as 
yourself. The title for today's message is Wisdom About Loving My Neighbor. How, how do we treat one another? What we believe about God must change how we behave around other people. How God has treated us in the gospel must dictate how we treat other people. And that's what James is, is going after today. We're going to see, we're going to see here that, that loving our neighbor proves that our religion is pure before the eyes of God. And so how do we love our neighbor? How does James challenge us to obey this command, to be doers of the word? The word tells us that we're to love our neighbor. How do we do it? How are we supposed to put this into practice? James gives us three ways that we can live this command out, three ways that we can love our neighbor. Here's the first one, reach out with compassion. We can love our neighbor by reaching out with compassion. Verse 27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit orphans and widows. This is how we can love our neighbor. It says that this is how we express a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. It's about God. It's about how God has related to us and what God has commanded us to do in response. This is how we are to love our neighbor, by visiting orphans and widows. Notice that right before James brings up this important topic of caring for orphans and widows, notice how he describes God. He describes God as Father. God has created the family. He designed the family all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created Eve for Adam so that a family could be established, so that in the context of the family, there would be protection, there would be a sense of security, there would be provision that the family would provide for one another and care for one another, and that there would be pleasure, that there would be joy and satisfaction in the context of the family. God planned the family, He designed the family, because God is a Father. And God's heart breaks, and our heart should break for those who find themselves in a broken family situation, broken by death or bereavement like widows or, or abandonment, or broken by, by orphans who have no one to look after them. God, the compassionate Father who loves us like a father, when we were lost, when we had no one to protect us or to provide for us or to satisfy and strengthen us, God visited us. He reached out to us and he commands us to visit orphans and widows, those who are destitute, those who have nothing, who have no one. This is God's heart. You know, right after God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, Moses stayed up there on the mountain and God explained the, the practical implications. He gave specific examples of how to follow the Ten Commandments. And just two chapters after the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 22, verse 22, God says to Moses, You shall not mistreat any widow 
or fatherless child. You see how close the, the, the widow and the orphan is to God's heart? He wanted to make that absolutely clear for the people of God as they were heading to the promised land, as he was establishing this nation that was to be a blessing to all nations. He wanted to make sure that they understood the centrality of caring for widows and orphans. God is described, this is his heart in Psalm 68, verse 5. God is called the father to the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God is the father and so he is the father of those who don't have an earthly father. And God cares for orphans and widows. That is who he is. That is what his heart is all about. And because that's what God's heart is all about, God wants his people to have a heart that is all about caring for widows and orphans. In Isaiah chapter 1, when God is challenging the people, they've been turning away from God, they've been sinning, and judgment is coming. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, is encouraging them to turn from their sin. And he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. So he says, stop doing all of the sinning that you're doing. And look what he says what they should do. He says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So we see it. We see it in Exodus. We see it in the Old Testament law. We see it in Psalms where God's heart is pouring out as the father to the fatherless. We see it in the prophets. Loved ones, I've just shown you three verses this morning for the sake of time. But I could take you all over God's word to show how widows and orphans keep coming up because they are on the heart of God. God is a father and he loves those who he, and he wants his people to love those who have experienced some sort of breakdown or tragedy in the context of a family. Those who are destitute, who have nothing and no one. Now the world in which we are living is, is quite different from the world that, that James readers would have been living in. Quite, quite different from the world of the New Testament or the world of the Old Testament. We're living in the age of the welfare state. We're living in the age of life insurance. If, if a spouse or a parent were to, were to pass away, we're living in the age of a child tax benefit that comes to parents who are raising a children. None of those things existed in James' day. But loved ones, just because we live in a different world doesn't mean that these needs don't still exist. That word visit in verse, in verse 27, it says to visit orphans and widows. That is the word that's so often used to describe how God comes to rescue his people. You see, we are created in God's image. We have been made his children as, uh, as followers of Jesus. And so God wants us to do, he wants us to feel what he feels and he wants us to do what he does. God feels compassion. And so we need to feel compassion for those who are vulnerable and who are oppressed. And God takes action and he wants us to take 
action to care for these kinds of needs. And so how do we care for orphans? We care for orphans by encouraging and practicing adoption, by, by taking these orphan children, whether it be locally or internationally. Many people in our church have taken uh, that step of, of welcoming a child into their home or by, by, by practicing foster care uh, for those who, who are in need. This is a very practical way that we can care for orphans, looking after widows, those who are older, by visiting those who are shut in, by running errands, by cutting grass, by shoveling snow, by picking up meals or medication. These are ways that we can practically care for orphans and, and widows. But loved ones, this, it's not simply restricted to these categories. When, when God is talking about orphans and widows, He's talking about anyone who finds themselves to be vulnerable, anyone who doesn't have someone looking out for them. That's, who's, that's who God's heart goes out to them and wants us to do the same. So think about someone who is brand new to Canada, who, who doesn't speak the language, who doesn't understand the culture, who, who doesn't know how to get their paperwork going or how to apply for a job. This is another example of someone who we can visit in their distress or in their affliction. Those, those who are trapped in some of the most evil and heinous things that are going on in our world, like human trafficking or the sex trade, to reach out to those and to rescue them from these uh, sorts of things. Think about people or, or families that, 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 that are raising children with special needs or adults with special needs and all of the different challenges and obstacles that they face every day in our culture to, to visit these people, to love them, to care for them, to, to meet with them. I think about uh, ministries in our church that, that we're just getting started, that we're, we're looking forward to, to build on and to see expanded, but our partnership with the Pregnancy Care Center, to those who have an, an unplanned a pregnancy, to meet them and to counsel them and to love them. I think about boxes of hope and providing groceries to our neighbors who are in need. Our, our church is ready. We've got a pantry packed with, with, with non-perishable food items for you to bring to your neighbor or to, to bring to someone who you know who is struggling financially. In a couple of weeks, you're going to get an update uh, as a church family about a, a partnership we're starting with Compassion Canada, which is an international ministry supporting and helping a children in a holistic manner across the world. These are all ways that we can prove that our religion is pure by loving our neighbor. We don't love our neighbor simply by passively um, interacting with whoever comes our way. No, the word here is visit, to go to these people in their uh, distress and to show the love of Christ. But James adds on here that as we're going and caring, it says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world. What is the stain of the world? What is the pollution that James is trying to protect us from in this text? Uh, James is 
crystal clear all the time. He, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't let sentences just kind of float and hang out there. It's not up to us to put in our ideas about what it means to remain unstained from the world. James will explain it, and he explains it in chapter 2. He explains that the stain of this world is to judge and to show partiality to other people. And so if we're going to love our neighbor, it begins with reaching out with compassion. Secondly, it involves reject, rejecting partiality. So we reach out with compassion and then we reject partiality because we live in a world, the air that we breathe is polluted air. And, and the smokestacks of our society are continually putting into the atmosphere this, this disgusting, putrid air of partiality that we can somehow judge people based on how they appear or how much money they make or whatever, whatever crooked category we can come up with. And James is saying, no, if you are going to care for, the people that God wants you to care for, you're going to have to look through the fog. You're going to have to filter out the pollution of this world. Because if you breathe in the air of this world, you're going to ignore those who are needy, and you're going to show favoritism and partiality to those who are wealthy or who are powerful. So in verse, in verse one, 1 of chapter 2 now, he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is how we remain unpolluted, unstained from the world, by ensuring that we show no partiality. Partiality in Greek there means to receive the face. To, to receive the face. James is saying, my brothers, make sure that no one receives the face as you hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to receive someone's face? It means to base your judgment and your assessment of someone based on their face. It means judging a book by its cover rather than the contents of, of that book. It means judging someone based on their outside appearance. So widows and orphans in that culture, based off how they were dressed, based off their grooming, based off their cleanliness, you would have been able to receive their face. You would have been able to assess where they stood in society based off their appearance. And James says that if we are to hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, we don't receive people according to their face. James here is speaking specifically about finances, but there's a, there's a wide-ranging application here for all of us. We're not supposed to receive one another according to their face, according to the color of, of their skin, according to whether or not they are male or female, according to whether or not they are attractive or unattractive, according to, according to whether or not they appear to be rich or poor. We are, not, we are not supposed to receive people according to their face. We're not supposed to judge people by outward appearances. I love what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where 
Samuel was sent to Jesse's household to select the new king of Israel. And God had to tell Samuel. He, he made this abundantly clear. He said, for the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the hearts. Religion that is pure looks at people the way that God looks at people. Religion that is pure is not racist. Religion that is pure is not sexist, is not ageist, is, it does not show favoritism to one group over the other. Religion that is pure looks at people the way that God looks at people, and God does not look at outward appearances. He looks at the heart. And James frames this around who Jesus is. He says, my brothers, going back to verse 1, show no partiality as you hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Glory in the, the New Testament sort of refers to shining brightness. Glory in the Old Testament had this idea of weight, that Jesus is the balance in the scales, that everything and everyone gets weighed according to the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the standard. He is preeminent. He is number one. And everyone else is a distant, distant second. There's no second place. There's no third place, fourth place. There's no, there's no hierarchy or structure that there's Jesus and then there's this group of people and then there's that person and then there's this group down here. No. Jesus is first. Everyone else is a distant, distant second. I mean multiple laps around the track. He's first. And then after that, there is no other distinction. Everyone is in the same boat. Everyone needs to be treated exactly the same. Praise, honor, distinction, recognition, glory belongs to Jesus and to nobody else. He's the Lord of glory. That is how Christians are to relate to other Christians, and to relate to other humans. That is how we love our neighbor, by knowing that Jesus is the Lord of glory, that he is great, and that all of the rest of us are the same. But we live in a world that rejects this idea. We live in a world where there are people who, who because of their twisted sinfulness, have bigotry and hatred in their heart that looks at someone's outward appearance and somehow assumes that just because they look that way, that that person is somehow worthless. And then there are other people, well-meaning people, who are trying to reject that bigotry, look at other groups of people and say, because of that person, because they look that particular way, they are automatically, they automatically fit into this category. They're, they're an oppressor or they're a victim. And rather than doing what the Bible does, which is teaches the universality of every human being, and the importance of individuality of every human being, the universality and the individuality, our world 
whether it's motivated by hatred or whether it's motivated by some sort of misguided approach to bringing about justice. We're continually dividing people into these groups. But loved ones, Jesus is the Lord of glory. And that changes everything. And that is the standard by which we we judge other people. We look at the heart. We don't look at the outward appearance. We don't put people into these categories. We understand the universality of humankind, that we are all created in the image of God. And we look at each individual heart and each individual person that no matter what they look like on the outside, that that person has the ability to make decisions and has accountability for those decisions that they make. We don't group people into these categories. We have two categories. We have Jesus and we have everybody else. We show no partiality. Because Jesus is the Lord of glory. He goes on the scale on this side. In all of his glory. Someone comes along and they're super successful. Well, how does their success compare to Jesus? There's no comparison. Someone comes along and they're super beautiful or attractive. How does their beauty compare to to the beauty of Jesus Christ? There's, there's There's no comparison. Jesus is first. Someone's really powerful or or influential. How does that power or influence in the scales compare to Jesus Christ? He's the Lord of glory. There's no comparison. Jesus is first. Everyone else is a distant second. So then James wants to get really practical for them. And if you noticed, as Alvira was reading this, this passage, that James follows this flow of argument. He really wants them to understand why partiality is so wrong. And so let's follow the trace here. I outlined it for you here on a slide. Let's trace James' argument against partiality. He begins by describing a hypothetical situation. Then he lays out a theological theme then he makes a cultural observation about what was happening in, the re- in real time for James' audience, and then he confirms it with a biblical command, with a biblical command. So let's start with the hypothetical situation in verse 2. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James describes this hypothetical situation. You know, I look forward to having people here in the auditorium to be able to welcome, but you picture someone driving up 10th line uh, into the parking lot in a fancy, shiny new car, and they pull out of the car and they hang up on their, they, they, they hang up a phone call on the latest uh, uh, smartphone, and they've, they've got these beautiful sneakers, and and they're dressed to the nines from top to bottom. Everything about them says they're cool, they're successful, they're wealthy, they're influential. And what is it about us that is somehow drawn to that kind of a person? Now imagine just when that person is pulling up, someone arrives on foot. They've just come up from the Livsgar bus station, 
and they're all disheveled. Their, their clothes are dirty, and they don't fit, and they're dated, and their hair is unkempt. And what is it that causes us to recoil from someone like that? James says, well, why is it that, that when someone comes in and they're well-dressed, they got gold rings, literally in the Greek there, it says they've got gold fingers. They got not just one ring, they got rings all over the place. Why is it that they get to sit here and they're automatically by default, you don't even know the person's heart. You've just looked on the outside and you've given them a prominent seat right up front. And then this other person, you don't even know them. You don't know their heart. You've only seen the outside appearance. You've told them so disrespectfully, you go and stand at the back or sit at my feet in case I need something because you're going to be my servant. James says, when you do that, Look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions? Have you not then created these other categories? So Jesus is Lord of glory, but then you have this category and a distinction here with this category and this category. James says that's wrong. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Then he says, and become judges. Who is the judge? The Lord of glory is the judge. He's the one in charge of the scales. We're not to be the judges. And then he says, judges at the end of verse 4 with evil thoughts. So not only are we judging, we're doing something we're not supposed to do, but we're doing a really bad job of it. It would be one thing to step in as judge, to, to enter into a territory that's really not within our jurisdiction, and do an okay or a decent job. But he said, no, you're being judges, that's wrong, and you're being judges with evil thoughts. You're doing what you're not supposed to do, and you're doing what you're not supposed to do really, really badly with evil thoughts. We are to reject partiality. So he lays out this hypothetical situation. The, the next part of his argument is to draw out a theological theme. Verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So James here lays out a theological theme. If you read cover to cover, we already mentioned all of the different times that God talks about widows and orphans. But as we read the Bible, we notice this theological thread, this theme of God's concern for the poor and for the needy. Think about Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, that says, For the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And loved ones, this is the verse that Jesus read in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. After he read this passage, they tried to throw him over a cliff and kill him because of what he was teaching on that day. God's heart is for the poor. It's a theological theme that we're supposed to be he says that, has not God chosen the poor? It says to be rich in faith. So even though someone might be poor in terms of worldly wealth, they can be rich in faith. Think about what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where it says, where it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become 
rich. Remember the church at Laodicea, they thought that they were rich and they were well clothed and Jesus told them, no, you are, you are impoverished and, and you need the true wealth, true riches. It's a theological theme that we see throughout the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, remember James isn't venturing ever really very far from the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Look back at James chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? To the poor in spirit belong the kingdom. That's what James is saying here. Think about what Paul said to the church at Corinth. When Corinth, that church was so guilty of favoritism. It was messing up how they were practicing the Lord's Supper. The rich were meeting ahead of time. The poor were eating uh, separately in 1 Corinthians 11. Some people were valuing the powerful and the influential. And Paul reminds them right from the get-go. He says for, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. This is the way that God works. The poor become rich. The, the uninfluential become the influencers. The last become First, the powerless are given the power. This is, this is the theological theme that James draws out. And then he makes a cultural observation as we continue to follow a James argument here. He moves from, a, moves from a hypothetical situation to a theological theme and now to a cultural observation. In verse 6, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, we don't know the specific cultural uh, situation that James is speaking to here. We know that, that James is the, was, is the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's the lead teaching a pastor there. And that because of persecution, all of these Jewish Christians have been spread all around now at the, at the core of this persecution were the Sadducees, which, which were the wealthy class, the priestly class, who could afford to hire lawyers to drag Christians into court, who could commission people like Saul of Tarsus before he was converted to, to go and to arrest. All of that requires resources. Poor people aren't really good at oppressing people. Because they, they don't have the means to do that. And so James could be talking about the, the persecution that he's talking about. He could be talking about something political. He could be talking about landowners and debt and farm workers. We don't know. But James here is saying, why would you favor a Christian who's rich? Because that Christian who's rich falls into a category of, of, of wealthy people who that broader, that broader category of people are in your culture, in your present day, are guilty of oppression. Now, let's be careful here. Let's be careful here. 
James is not automatically saying that every rich person is therefore an oppressor. How much money you have in your wallet or the color of your skin or your background or your education does not automatically make anyone an oppressor. In the same way that how much money you have or the color of your skin does not automatically make someone a victim. James here is is simply describing what was happening at that particular time. These categories are not fixed. They're not constant. James is going to mention Abraham in chapter 2, verse 21 to 23. Abraham was very wealthy. He's going to talk about Job in chapter 5, verse 11. Right after in Job chapter 5, James is going to be railing on the rich again. And then he quotes Job, who was very, very wealthy. Again, when we look at every human being, we got to look at them in terms of universality and individuality. Universally in terms that every human being is made in the image of God. And as an individual in terms of they are responsible for the personal choices that they make. We don't treat people according to these kinds of categories. So James moves then from this cultural observation, which really cannot be uh, relied upon, and he gets rock solid on a biblical command, a biblical command. Verse 8, he says, for if you really fulfill the royal law, he just mentioned kingdom, the royal law, the law of the kingdom, the law of the king, according to the scripture, here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we're going to care for orphans and widows, if we're going to protect ourselves from being prejudiced or showing favoritism, we have to remember the law of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, James here is quoting Jesus, and Jesus is quoting the book of Leviticus. So here's the command, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But what's the broader context of Leviticus chapter 19. Well, three verses earlier, this is what God commands in Leviticus 19, verse 15. You shall not be partial. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So James isn't just proof texting by throwing, you know, love your neighbor as yourself in there at the end. No, he's he's teaching on the very theme of what Leviticus chapter 19 is about. That in order to love our neighbor, we, we must reject the sin of partiality. He roots it in a biblical command. So we understand Leviticus 19 in its immediate context, but then we also need to think about Leviticus 19 in its more broad context. So this is the law. This is the royal Law. It's also called the law of liberty a little bit later. Remember, Leviticus chapter 19 comes after God had rescued the people, after they had experienced firsthand what oppression was like. And they were, they were profiled and persecuted and oppressed and enslaved because of their ethnicity, because of how they appear, because of their background. And then God now in Leviticus chapter 19 is saying, don't be partial. Don't let the powerful rule over the weak. Don't let the rich rule over the poor. Don't let one group rule over another group. Love your neighbor as yourself. He gives this biblical command, and it's rooted in, if you read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, so many of these commands are rooted 
with a reminder that God had rescued the people from Egypt. Think about how God treated you, and in light of that, that's how you should turn around and treat other people. You see, when it comes to partiality, we don't often think about this. There's an aspect of partiality uh, to, to, to racism or to sexism that's rooted, that's rooted in hatred. There's, a, there's another aspect of favoritism and partiality that's not even really rooted in the other person. The motivation doesn't really come from how that person is dressed or what they look like. It's rooted in something inside of us that says that if I show favoritism to this person, somehow I'm going to benefit from that. That if this person is really wealthy or influential, that if I show deference or kindness to them, if I give them a good seat at the front of the church, maybe, maybe they'll do something that maybe they'll use their wealth or their power to turn around and help me. It's not about the other person and how they look or how much. It's, it's about what we think they will do for us. How will that person somehow, and that's why we ignore the poor. That's why we ignore the widow and the orphan because we think, well, if I were to help them, there's no way that they could turn around and pay me back. There's, there's no reciprocity. There's, there's no way that me helping them could benefit me. Beloved ones, if we think about this command in context of the gospel, when we think about what we have been given in Christ, then we don't need to be looking to other people to try to benefit us in some way because we've received every possible benefit in Christ. And so, really, what we need to come back to time and time again is not to think, oh, I, I need to be, show favor to that person because they can do something for me. It's simply, no, I can give. I can freely give. No matter what the person looks like, no matter whether or not that person can pay me back, I can freely give because Jesus has freely given to me. Now, we've been talking as we've been studying the, the, the book of James that he, he does this bridging and building things. He mentions a word, and then he introduces that word again to expand on a new concept with the word steadfastness and lacking and the word and religion. And now James can do the same thing with the word law. So he just mentioned law in verse 9. And then, sorry, verse 8 and in verse 9. Now look at verse 10. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy to no, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment." So, loved ones, if we are going to truly love our neighbor and prove that our religion is pure, we've got to reject partiality. Sorry, reject partiality. We've got to reach out with compassion. And then lastly, we've got, to, we've got to remember God's mercy. We've got to remember God's mercy. James here is warning against this sort of selective approach to following God's law. And he uses this really absurd example. Imagine someone who committed murder 
to somehow say, I know I committed murder. I know I took that other person's life in cold blood, but I was a faithful husband. Like, it just doesn't really, it just doesn't really make sense. And, and, and when, when someone is, is, when someone cheats on their spouse, it, it would be ridiculous for them to, to look their spouse in the eye after breaking that, that covenant promise that they had made to their spouse to say, yeah, I know, I know that I did that, but the good news is I didn't commit murder. I mean, to, to say something like that is just, just makes no sense. It, it takes away the gravity, the seriousness of what has taken place. And James here is warning us about thinking, well, as long as I don't do the really, really bad stuff, as long as I don't murder or commit adultery, it really, it really doesn't matter if I ignore that person or I show favoritism to that person or roll my eyes at them or give them cut eye or whatever it may be. It really doesn't matter. James says it matters because we need to make sure that we are following the whole law. But we're not following the whole law so that we can earn our way to heaven. Because we have been shown mercy. That's what James wants to make clear here. And so he's saying, listen, don't be judging other people. And don't think it to be a small thing that you can somehow treat people however you want or show favoritism or partiality or to ignore the needs of widows and orphans. He says, you have been shown mercy. You have been shown mercy. And because we've been shown mercy... That is supposed to change how we treat other people. Again, we're supposed to think about Jesus first and then to think about how far short of his glory we have fallen and everyone has fallen. And we are to show mercy. Our default when we interact with another person is to think about them in terms of how can I be merciful to them Again, the Sermon on the Mount, so central to what James is trying to teach. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 uh, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God is our Father, chapter 1, verse 27. Jesus is the Lord of glory, chapter 2, verse 1. The Word of God is the law of liberty. And we are to be compassionate and impartial and merciful. We're to visit those who are afflicted the way that God visited us. We are to avoid judging people and showing them mercy because God has shown mercy to us. We're to forgive people because God has forgiven us. We're to show mercy because God has been merciful to us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus that you have shown us mercy. And God, I pray that the mercy that we have received from the Lord of glory would be the standard by which we interact with other people. God, I pray that the love that you have shown to us would be the standard by which we choose to love other people. 
God, you have visited us in our affliction, so help us to visit orphans and widows. God, you have not judged us by our outward appearance. Lord, you have not even judged us by our inward appearance because you know every heart and you know the wickedness and the sin that lies within every unregenerate person. And yet you chose to show mercy to us. And so God, help us to live lives of compassion Help us to live lives that are impartial and sincere. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to live lives that are dictated by mercy because you have been so merciful to us. God, we pray that you would be our vision, that you would be our focus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.